Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Welcome to another episode of the Codish podcast. I'm Erin Allard, a platform support engineer at Heroku. And today I'm talking with Ben Orenstein, who is one of the co-founders of Tuple. Hello, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Can you tell us just a little bit about your professional background? And then we can jump into talking about Tuple and the whole topic of today's podcast, which is making the shift from engineer to entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, I spent most of my professional life as a programmer. I've been writing code for, I guess, about 15 years now. And uh, mostly in Ruby, written a lot of Rails apps, uh, done some consulting, done some product work, that kind of thing. And two years ago, I decided to quit my job and start my uh, first software company uh, with two friends of mine. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you and your co-founders decided to build and why? I had been wanting to start something for a while. And so I would go over to... um, uh, one of my co-founders' apartments, and we would sort of kick around business ideas. And this process actually happened over the course of weeks and months, I think. The idea we finally settled on was something that that we wanted. And it was something that we couldn't find. So I used to be, we both used to be um, happy users of this product called Screen Hero, uh, which was a an app that let you do uh, remote pair programming, remote control of computers, mm-hmm. screen sharing. And uh, it got acquired by Slack and then pretty much shut down unceremoniously. Oh, yeah, because Slack definitely does not have a pair programming feature. <laughs> yes, exactly. I kept looking around and asking friends of mine, programmer friends of mine, like, hey, what are you using now that Screen Hero is gone? And everyone seemed to have no answer for that. And eventually, one day, it was just like, it seems like there was this great answer to this problem that was a real problem. And then it went away. And now there just seems to be this this like gap in the market. And no one has filled it. And it's been years. And so we mm-hmm. said, it sounds hard. It sounds technically difficult. It's not like what we've done before. But like, what if we just took a crack at it and like, could see if we, uh, we could make this? I'm smiling because you sound very much like how I sound in my own mind, which is being able to identify a place where a thing should exist and then having the skills needed to bring it to life. Mm. Yeah, well... It- it it turns out we figured it out, but it was in the beginning it was very unclear, and that was like the biggest, that was the scariest thing about this this whole transition. Actually, was that uh, the technical complexity felt really high, and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to actually build something good. Okay, so the Tuple app helps developers pair program together. For folks who might not know this phrase or who, who might be new to the industry, could you tell us what pair programming is? Yeah, it's kind of a fancy name for a, a pretty simple concept, which is just two programmers or maybe even more, but usually two, uh, writing code together, uh, usually on the same machine. So if I were just like, uh, uh, hey, could you take a look at this with me? Like, hey, Aaron, like, you know, this bit back end code better than I do. Like, could you like help me with this, whatever? Then and then like, we're sort of sitting there and like, you're watching while I'm typing or vice versa. That's that's pair programming. And that's kind of all it is. Can you tell me a bit about what was the driver for you from going from building things to running a company that builds things? Like, is this an internal drive for you? Have you always thought, you know, hey, I want to run my own thing? Or was it more me and my buddies just like building stuff together? Let's do it more formally. Uh, it was definitely more the former. I felt for kind of a long time that this would be my eventual destiny. This seemed to be the best like lifestyle possible if you could make it work. And so I've been trying to mm-hmm. like 
move myself in that direction for a while. Uh, and so a lot of the the side projects and things I've taught myself over the years and things I took on at work were kind of designed uh, with that long-term goal in mind. I was trying to teach myself the skills for how to run a software business while I was still making a normal developer salary. So you've been noodling on this for a while and kind of preparing yourself. Yep, noodling for sure, but also like intentionally launching, like making things. Like um, I've launched a couple really tiny SaaS apps in the past uh, and eventually uh, volunteered to run a SaaS app that uh, my previous company had started. So I was trying to take action uh, and, and learn these things while I could get paid for it. Exactly. Yeah, good for you. Um, what advice would you have to folks who might be listening who are kind of in the same boat as you and have a lot of the same drive as you do around, you know, wanting to shift from making their own apps to actually running a company? What would you suggest that they can kind of weave in to their professional lives right now to help them keep marching forward towards that? So what did you prioritize when you were making mm. that transition? My guess is for the average developer, you're going to be very strong on the software part of software company and not as strong on the company part. So <laughs> you're going to have all these technical skills, right? You'll know how to build the thing. But building the thing is uh, a third of the problem or something. It's some, some non-dominant uh, percentage of what it takes to run a software company, I think. Mm -hmm. And so because you're already so concentrated, you'll have your tech skills will be so far ahead of your other skills. So I would mostly not focus on tech once you're a couple of years into your career. Interesting. And instead, yeah, I would instead focus on um, the other pieces. Like, how do you actually get a person to pay you money for something? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, that's a complicated answer to that. And there's a lot of answers and there, there's different shapes and all this. Um, so I would try to get someone to do that. Part of the reason that we have been reasonably successful is that, I've tried to get people to buy software that I wrote on the internet a bunch of times. Yeah. And so you just learn, there's a lot of lessons you learn and things you realize that work or don't work. Um, and I'm not sure there's a better way really than just trying to do it. Uh, so like I, I might ask myself if I were interested in eventually making this leap, what's a really small thing I could build that I could try to learn how to sell and learn how to market um, and learn how to do good customer development and actually build something people really want and then convince them to give you money. All that stuff that's outside the technical realm. I really love this idea because it's basically like prototyping a company. You know, pick some side project that maybe solves a problem you have or solves a problem enough people have. See if you can design it in a way that and and provide value in a way that people are willing to pay for it, but maybe not even have the expectation that it would uh, develop into a full company. You just give giving yourself the practice of creating a product that you would sell, as opposed to a project which you just kind of keep to yourself. Yeah, I, I think if your bar is, I want to go from making a developer salary to starting my very first SaaS app and have that eventually sustain me full time. That's really really hard. I think doing that in like one go is kind of probably unrealistic for most people. And mm -hmm. but a, a more realistic thing is like start your first three small things quickly and, and use them as learning experiences and do them while you have the safety net of a full-time job. Um, launch them on the side, see what you can do. Like if, if you can't get them anywhere, then you'll realize, okay, I, there's certain things I need to improve about my skill set or my knowledge. Uh, and you'll be able to do that while it's not expensive and while you're not like burning through savings and panicking. Right, right. And it's also just a much more strategic approach, kind of uh, trying to leap pad yourself forward. You mentioned something just a moment ago. Um, I think it had to do with wanting to leave your your developer job. And that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you today, which was, 
what was it like for you either uh, emotionally or structurally changing so drastically your day-to-day routine, right? Where you're, you're a developer developing someone else's thing, you're getting a really steady paycheck, and then all of a sudden you're kind of on your own, both in terms of what you do with your time and how you're bringing in money. What was that like? It was actually kind of great. It was occasionally <laughs> stressful, but, but mostly really good. Um, so I have two co-founders and we work in my, one of my co-founders' second bedrooms in his condo. Um, my day-to-day looked like you know, waking up, uh, walking a few short blocks to the quote-unquote office, uh, and then right. working on this problem with people that I really like a lot and respect. The actual day-to-day was, was quite fun. And I was leaning on some interesting skills I had developed. I was learning new things. The, the being kind of having no one to answer to was kind of okay for me personally because I feel compelled to do a good job because we're all I think we all kind of feel that for each other we all want to like you know contribute equally mm-hmm. to the to the good of the company um, it was a bit stressful financially of course um, mm-hmm. we all saved money so we had a, a decent um, amount of runway going into it but it, it almost doesn't matter how much is there I think if every month it only goes down. <laughs> Um, right, it's, right. it's just definitely stressful knowing like, hey, I have a finite number of months left and I can see that number ticking down consistently. Um, yeah, so that was yeah. that was a bit hard. Uh, but we did early on um, while we were... So my, my two co-founders, Spencer and Joel, were, were doing most of the code. Uh, and so while they were writing the first version of the app, I was actually out um, selling it to people and getting people to sort of pre-commit to purchasing um, licenses to oh, it. Oh, okay. So you were actually out selling the product before it was even finished. Uh, yeah, before it was even anything, uh, way before it wow. was, was launched. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, totally. So in my mind, there were basically two big risks when we got started. Uh, one was that uh, no one actually wants this thing that we're making. And the other was that people do want it, but we don't know how to make it. We're not capable. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to um, start knocking those down early on so we wouldn't waste you know, a year or multiple years. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out one of those just wasn't uh, going to go our way. Mm-hmm. So for the first one, to make sure that we were making something people actually wanted, I started trying to sell it before it existed. So I, would, I started with you know very warm connections, like friends of mine, people I had met at conferences, uh, other developer friends, and said, hey, uh, we're making a thing. Our, our inspiration is what Screen Hero was, that tool that I know you used and liked. Uh, if we make this thing and it's good, uh, I'd love you to be an early customer. Would you commit to paying a certain, you know, a few hundred bucks? Uh, for uh, an annual account to be one of our first users. And in exchange, you're going to get a ton of access to us. You're going to get the ability to sort of shape the project. And you're going to get the product before anybody else gets it. The reason why that's interesting to me is that most people I've come across who are building a thing that they eventually want to make money on are so desperate to get early feedback that they're practically giving it away or or are literally giving it away. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you consider doing that? you know, offering customers use of your product early on for free? Or like, just tell us more about why are you charging customers for something uh, before you've built it? It was mostly to de-risk it. It was to prove to ourselves that um, people would pay for it. Because Mm -hmm. we weren't interested in whether people would use it. We were interested in whether it was a viable business. So giving it to people for free could show that they would use it, but it doesn't show that they will actually pay us money for it. People want to support you. Like if you if you tell them, "Hey, I'm working on a startup. It does this." Everyone wants to tell you what you want to hear. But oh, that's so cool! And if you were like, "Oh, would you use that if we made that?" They'd be like, "Oh yeah, totally. I could definitely see myself using that." Everyone will say yes to that question. But if you mm-hmm. say, "Awesome, uh, it's four hundred dollars," they go, "Oh, oh well, um, hmm. I'd actually have to think about it because X, Y, Z." And then suddenly, like you you have a lot more information when you actually try to get someone to give you a credit card. 
Right. And um, a follow on question to this is how did you come up with that initial price that you were tossing out? Hmm. Um, I didn't come up with a price. I actually tested lots of prices. Ah. So for, for every person I talked to, I would pick a different price. Uh, and I slowly basically walked, mostly just walking it up as time went on. Uh, okay. So I tested okay. a huge, like the, the highest price I tested was maybe five times bigger than the the, small, the lowest price I tested. And did you notice any trends depending on to what level you raised the price or who you were talking to or that kind of thing? Um, yes, definitely. So there definitely is some price elasticity. Bigger companies in particular, they are not afraid of big numbers. And mm. so you could say, oh, it's it's $1,000 a person a year. And to them, it's just like, whatever, like that's that doesn't really matter. It's, right, it's fine. Right, they can write it off. Yeah, they're, it's it's not their money, and and they have a lot of it, and so so there's definitely. It was interesting. Like I I I got some yeses at two hundred dollars a year, and I got some yeses at eight hundred dollars a year. I did notice though that the higher prices pushed us into bigger companies that had slower purchasing processes. Mm. Uh, and so one of the things I had to sort of step back from and s- is to sort of say, do I want to run a company where we are doing like enterprise kind of sales that take three months to close. Sure, we can make a lot of money on those things. But is it fun? Like, uh, did we start this company to like do stuff that's not fun? Or like that that we really don't like? (laughs) Right. It also adds an element of risk for you. You know, are you going to get paid? When are you going to get paid? Yes. It's just I I find it soul kind of soul sucking to like, fill out vendor qualification questionnaires and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the the pricing we moved to actually over time was was on the lower end of of the range I tested because I was more interested in building a self-serve kind of business where people could just sign up and do it. Um, And we still we do actually do enterprise deal like bigger uh, deals with customers. But it's typically because they've sort of raised their hand and said, hey, we want this sort of special feature or custom terms of service or whatever. And and we have a pretty reasonable, we have like a sort of a floor on the size of those deals. So it's like, okay, if you, if you want these annoying, if you want us to do annoying things, it's going to cost you at least, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 bucks or whatever. And just on a more, uh, I guess, sentimental note, what was it like for you the first time a customer, maybe a big customer reached out to you as opposed to you having to go hunt people down? It's amazing. It, it, I, the, I, I'm not sure I remember the first time, but I, I can tell you even still, like just there's so many little fun things about having your like having built your own thing like i i, li- I like to search for our company's name uh on twitter uh, <laughs> I, I only do it like 20 or 30 times a day um but when <laughs> someone tweets something positive that that we didn't like tell them to do or they just like decided to like share with the world that they they like our app it's like so mm-hmm. satisfying oh uh, yeah i can imagine so there's just like a million little like uh, dopamine hits available to you when you're <laughs> when you're doing this one of the things that stood out to me as I was reading the Tuple website was that you all are not only self-funded, but also sustainably profitable. And I believe I'm remembering this correctly. You have not taken any investor funding, right? Yep, totally true. That is really, really rare in tech. Can you talk a little bit about about each of those points, the self-funding, the sustainably profitable, and and why you chose not to take funding? Yeah. Um... I mean... I don't know if that's in the cards in the future, but at least you've made it this far without it, right? Yes, we have. Um, I would say funding is probably not in the future. The reason we didn't look to funding, we we had the option of doing it. Uh, we decided not to. And the reason was that we thought we could make it to ramen profitability without it. And so rather than sell equity in the company early when it was worth the least, we figured we can probably get there without doing that. And if we want to do it, we can always do it later. And with every passing month, as long as revenue is trending up, like the, the stock is getting more valuable. So we can get more for mm. it later if we wait. Um, so as part of it was financial. But a, I, probably even an, an even bigger part was 
um, we, we liked that we were the only ones that had control. We didn't want to mm-hmm. answer to somebody else. So much of the motivation for the three of us to start our own thing was the flexibility and the control that it would give us over our own destiny and lives and work-life balance and all of these things. And the idea that all that stuff would suddenly start to be influenced by outside investors was um, not something we were interested in. I know here, so I'm I'm based in Silicon Valley, even though Heroku is mostly a distributed company. Um, here in Silicon Valley, you hear a lot about VCs throwing gobs and gobs of money at at even just concepts, um, trying to get market share. Is that something that you all have considered as well as you thought about whether or not to take funding? Um, you know, just the idea that more money could help you reach more customers potentially and maybe stave off competition? So we do think about, we, we do occasionally just sort of bring up the thought experiment of what, what would happen if we raised money, just to sort of make sure we're not, we're, we're not just like writing it off once and never reconsidering it. Um, I would say the biggest argument I can think of in, in favor of us raising funding would be to hire um, some additional people. There's, mm. of course, a ton of development work to be done. Um, and like, it would be amazing to have a designer on staff and, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the biggest argument for it. But I, I think where we've come down is, is still that we value the, the freedom and the flexibility. And I kind of have this feeling like I want to earn it. Like I want to be able to hire somebody because we grew revenue to a point that we could afford them uh, sustainably. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. I think that would just feel so much better to me versus, oh, we raised a bunch of money and then we started hiring people and now we're negative. Remember when we were profitable? Well, we're not anymore. Now we're like burning money every month. We're back to where we were like when we started. Mm-hmm. And having right, achieved, right. having crossed that line where we're sustainable to go out of that zone again feels bad to me. I'd like to switch gears a little. I'm really curious to know what has surprised you about this evolution or, or what have you discovered about yourself or about this process that you may have been unprepared for? I guess one thing that I have, I've learned that was a bit surprising, I've seen this in myself, but I think the pressures of running our own thing have made it more apparent which is it's really easy to get, for me in particular, to get focused on what has happened in the last couple days or the last few weeks and extrapolate too much from there. So I, I find myself a little bit too sensitive in both directions, meaning like if it's been really good, I assume that everything's going to be amazing. And if it has been not so good, I assume everything is going to be terrible. Mm. And I think I've, like, I'm, I'm working on for myself is just being like less, like don't let myself get pulled in either direction until there's like a longer term trend to pay attention to and then, and then start to like extrapolate from there. We don't have investors, but we do have a, a group of advisors that are, are friends and uh, people we trust. And I send them a, an update about once a month on the company. And a recent one, a few months ago, we had like a kind of a, a not so great month. And I sent this update and it was like, oh, the sky is falling. I feel terrible. And everyone was like, chill out, dude. Like everything's fine. Don't over extrapolate from one month. And then the month after that, we had our best month ever. And oh, so wow. it's like, yeah, it's, it turns out, uh, there's just like, there's some noise in the signal. And so if you react mm-hmm. to every little up and down, you're just going to go crazy. At least I will. So now that you actually, I should ask, how long have you all been running tuple? Um, it's been about 18 months now and you're sustainably profitable. The trend is going up. So what are you working on now? I can imagine that the first few months you were coding furiously, doing sales furiously, trying to test the market. What sort of phase are you at now with the product and with the business? In the short term, we've been focusing on stability. So we had a, a kind of a, 
a, a nice amount of growth over the last handful of months, and we actually hit our first sort of scaling challenges. So we had to spend oh, some cool. time. That's a good problem to have. It is totally, yeah. Um, and because like we are charging for it and customers are profitable to us, like we can throw money at this problem, which is nice. Just like give us a few more dinos. All right, here we go. Let's get back to work. Mm-hmm. We're a little bit at a crossroads, honestly. So the app is actually in a state where we feel pretty good about it. There's lots of things we want to improve about it, of course, and that will always be true. But people are mostly happy with it. Like once people get in and get activated and use it, like they the re- the reviews and the responses have been really positive. And so now we're sort of stepping back and saying, okay. We have this really great pair programming, remote pairing app uh, for Mac. And we're starting to see it, that this, this thing happen where people are like on Twitter, like saying nice things about us. And they'll be like, oh, Tuple is really great. Uh, if you have a Mac, you should check it out. And we're always kind of like, ah, damn it. Like, I wonder if we could just be a great pairing app, just period. Just just like a great, you know, go multi-platform and, and, and take on that complexity. And would that mean having everything completely done in a web browser or you maybe don't know that yet? Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't actually. So our app is a native app uh, on Mac OS. Um, it's actually written in C++ mostly, uh, plus a little bit of Swift. Uh, and we did that because we needed full control and we need speed. Because if you're mm, a remote right. pairing app, latency matters too much. Right. So we had really, we tried to, we have briefly sort of explored the Electron world and running it inside a browser and it just was, was a no-go for us. So I think what we'd be looking at is two more native apps. And so there's this sort of big question, which is like, when do we do this? Like, I think eventually we do this for sure. But like, when do we want to take on that complexity? Because it's, it's nice to expand our market a whole bunch and, and serve more customers and make them happy. Um, and take advantage of this opportunity in front of us. But now we have like upping the complexity with a small team is kind of a bit dangerous, I would say. Yeah, that is a really, really interesting question to think about. How do you, so the three of you, I understand are pretty close and you have an advisory team as well. So how do you think you'll go about making that decision? Well, (laughs) we asked our advisors about it um, and they were, I would say the consensus was kind of like wait. Like you're, there's still plenty of plenty more to do in, in the Mac world. Um, and I think that is a very reasonable answer. Honestly, I think we're feeling a little uh, more ambitious than that. I think we can handle... Like It's going to be hard. I have no... I, I don't think it's going to be easier than we expect. I, I think it'll be harder than we expect. Um, but we all are feeling kind of like... When we first started the company, we we're just like, we just want to get like, you know, ramen profitable, keep it kind of small, niche, little business. Uh, and now I think we're we're sort of stepping back and saying there appears to be a pretty big opportunity here. There's not like a ton of great remote pairing app competitors out there that we feel. I think we have a chance of like becoming a really great answer to this problem across platforms. Like I think cross platform is part of the part of the package there to like to really do it right. And mm-hmm. so I would say actually like that we're we're we pretty much made the decision that we're going to do this. It's just a question of timing. So Got in the it. next couple months we're going to be doing some sort of preparatory refactorings to make the code that we do have more portable so that we can start bringing it to other um, operating systems more easily when we do do that. Got it. Got it. So you're pretty well aligned on this one. Yeah, fortunately. Yeah. We've actually been very well aligned pretty consistently. It's, it's like weird how little conflict we have. Well, that's a bummer because I was going to ask you a very <laughs> important question about disagreements between <laughs> co-founders. Uh, do, you, do you have anything to share in that regard or has it not really come up yet for you? Um, we take different positions on things. Like we, we argue different positions as sort of devil advocate, devil's advocate uh, from time to time. And I would say occasionally we have, you know, different preferences, but we haven't had like a, no, I, I, we should definitely do this. And I'm convinced that I'm right and you're wrong. And the other person is, feels the same way. Uh, we haven't had anything like that. 
Uh, and I think it's we're all kind of um, flexible people pleasers, probably. And so I think our, 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 we're pretty good at resolving those conflicts. And we, we also have this, this idea that I love that we, um, I think was an Amazon thing, uh, which is disagree and commit, which is yes. like, okay, I don't, I don't think this is the right thing, but I'm going to get on board and like, you know, I've said my piece. So like, I'll, I'll commit and like do the thing and, and go with the team and not be a pain about this. Can you tell us a bit about, I mean, you don't have to get into the specifics, but how your team approached ownership? Uh, of the of the legal entity, I'm sure that is behind Tuple. I know this is a question that a lot of co-founders have. Like, should it always be even? If it's not even, what should the proportions be? How did you all have that conversation? Yeah, um, it is. I think that's actually a little bit interesting. Um, so I came to this um, with a fairly large audience from having done a lot of like teaching and conference speaking and and like launching previous projects. So. It felt pretty clear that in the early days, I was going to be able to provide a decent like kickstart to our like sales efforts because of this audience. Mm-hmm. And so there was sort of this like, I got this sort of sense from from Spencer and Joel uh, that they were like, well, if you thought you should like start with a little bit more equity, that like seems kind of reasonable because of this asset that you're bringing to the table. Um, but I thought on it for a while and uh, decided that. I didn't. It might be true that in the beginning I was bringing a bunch to the table, but the it's not a short process to make a company work, and I expected that we would be working at it for years. And maybe today I I'm doing this useful thing, but then like six months from now you're doing this this useful thing, and I was concerned that there would just be this like weird resentment that would build up over time, and I would feel bad about it, and it just it sounded like kind of a recipe for for bad news. So mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day, we just went with equal partnerships, and uh, we've been happy with that. So to wrap things up on my end, and then I'd love to turn it over to you, I would like to spend a couple minutes talking about Heroku, um, why you guys chose Heroku, what you do with Heroku, and how it's working for you at the moment. Yeah, so I have been a Heroku fan actually since my days at ThoughtBot, which is a Ruby on Rails consultancy. And it was like the default answer that we would have for our clients because uh, we were designers and developers and had no interest in doing DevOpsy type things. And so we would mm-hmm. just point our customers or our clients at that. And that generally just got the job done. Uh, and I am just a huge fan of that. I, I still am not interested in, in worrying about servers and things like that. Uh, and like making sure backups happened or, or that, that, that type of thing. Uh, so I've been a fan for a while. I've been a customer for a long time. And when we spun this up, it was like pretty clear to me that that was the, that was the call again. Awesome. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm on the Heroku support team and uh, coincidentally, I actually responded to a ticket that you had yeah. submitted uh, at some point within the last few months. So that Hilarious. was really, really fun for this to come full circle. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, you know, without giving too much of your proprietary information away, tell us how you're using Heroku, like what features of Heroku are helping to power Tuple? Mm. Um, it's actually a pretty simple setup. So the app is complicated. Um in what it does, but the complication mostly comes in in peer to peer variety. So when you're you're doing a, a pairing session, uh, the app is connected to the other app, uh, and it mostly doesn't flow through any servers that we own. So our the thing we host on Heroku is um, our backend. So like how you sign up and bill and and send invites and things like that. I would say the most complicated piece is probably we do have uh, maintain an action cable connection, like a WebSockets connection to every client so you can so we send down like their friends list like who's online and like when someone calls you we need to be able to push a message to somebody uh, so we do actually have 
uh, currently like thousands of people connecting simultaneously um, wow. via WebSockets uh, and like getting updates all day long about who's coming online, who went offline and things like that. Um, so being able to, as we scale, um, host more uh, Rails processes and also just like go kind of horizontally by adding more dynos has, has truly been really useful because after you get a certain number of WebSocket connections on one, uh, one server, it gets a little bit uh, not so happy. And are you all doing anything in terms of data storage on Heroku? Uh, yeah, yeah, we use Postgres. We just upgraded to a beefier Postgres database. Uh, I love that I can tr- like the backups just happen or like could be turned on with one command. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, or like database maintenance, just like I get an email. It's like, oh, your database was upgraded something, something. And I'm like, cool. And it's, it's, I love that it's not a thing I have to think about. I think that's it from me, Ben. Okay. Um, I'd love to turn it over to you. Do you have anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, sure. I will just say one thing, uh, which is that there's there's a big trend happening in our industry. And that is people are working remotely a lot more. And sometimes that's you know full-time remote, like a fully distributed company. Sometimes that's like a satellite office. Sometimes it's just like working from home a couple of days a week. But like remote is, is super, super on the rise. And overall, I think that is a super good thing. I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I like it and I do it myself and it, it's great. But I also think that we're, there's a bit of a danger in uh, getting a little bit lonely and getting a little bit isolated, especially if you are mm-hmm. full-time remote. It's, it's hard to feel as connected to your coworkers. Uh, and so yep. I do want to just pitch if, if people are... If you feel this uh, or think you might be at risk for this, pair programming, I think, is a really great uh, tool to have in your toolbox to sort of combat this. Um, so I think the code that you write when you're pairing is, is a bit better. But even if it weren't, it's just kind of more fun to like bring somebody onto your machine and like do something together and tackle a problem together and to get that kind of high bandwidth voice communication. Um, I think it makes the, the remoteness, it reduces the bad parts of remote unless you keep the good parts, I think. So whether you use a tool like ours or not, kind of irrelevant. But if you're a developer and you're working remote, I think it'd be good to just just make sure you have like a little bit of remote pairing on your your calendar every so often to keep you keep you sane. I definitely agree. I came across I don't know if it was a blog post or a little, you know, those pretty little quotes that they post on Instagram. Sometimes it was some kind of text, and the person who put it together said that even though she was an introvert, she was looking back about all the times in the past that she felt really connected and joyful. And it turns out that all of those times were times that she was with other people, Um, maybe Mm -hmm. strangers she was meeting while traveling or family or friends who meant a lot to her. And I really identified with that because I am also an introvert. And I also love when I get to get on video with my colleagues. Um, Heroku is remote, like I said, and, uh, you know, I could probably go days without talking to anyone. I know that's not healthy. I could do it if mm-hmm. I had to. Um, but getting to see and talk to my colleagues who I genuinely like once or twice a day, it's it's really cool. So I'm totally on board with that. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. How can listeners reach out to you online? Uh, Twitter is probably best. I'm R00K. Uh, I'm on there probably too much. You can also email me at ben at tuple.app if you'd like. And if you uh, are a fan of podcasts, which I'm guessing you might be, uh, I host a weekly podcast called The Art of Product, where I talk uh, with my co-host about the sort of day-to-day behind the scenes of running a software company. And of course, the website tuple.app if they're interested in checking out Tuple. That'd be great. Thanks again, Ben. It's been really fun chatting with you. My pleasure. I had a great time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku 
the easiest way to deploy, manage and scale your applications in the cloud. If you would like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com/podcasts.